One of the most fascinating works of poetry that I have ever come across is the poem entitled Five Minutes After I Die. It's a short poem and it goes like this. Loved ones will weep o'er my silent face. Dear ones will clasp me in sad embrace. Shadows and darkness will fill the place five minutes after I die. Faces that sorrow I will not see. Voices that murmur will not reach me. But where, oh, where will my soul be five minutes after I die? Never to repair the good I lack, fixed to the goal of my chosen track, no room to repent, no turning back, five minutes after I die. Matted forever with my chosen prong, long is eternity, oh, so long. Then woe is me if my soul be wrong five minutes after I die. It's important that you and I live not for the dot, but we live for the bottom line. That's what we've been studying in this these last few Sundays as we have been talking about the greater things in life, not to live for the dot, not to live for the now, not to live for this earth, not to live in this life, but to live for the afterlife, to live a life that, that is bent on eternity. And so because of that, our text today is found in Matthew chapter 13, and our subject is simply entitled Driven. There's an intentionality about the word driven. The word driven means many different things. If you look it up in the dictionary, it says something like this, to send, to expel, or to otherwise cause to move by force or compulsion. It means to cause and to guide the moment, the, the movement of something, to cause and to guide the movement of something. That something could be a goal, it could be an objective, or it could be a mission. What drives you? In other words, what gets you up in the morning and gets those feet out of the bed, squarely on the floor, and up about your business? Well, the alarm alone sometimes doesn't do it. That's why my iPhone has a snooze button. And it's real easy to just go and then go back to bed. What motivates you? What, what sort of sort of compels you to get out of bed. You know, when you look at the word driven, it's always good to define a word by looking at the synonyms. And a synonym is simply another word that either describes the word that you're seeking to understand or maybe a similar word that will describe it. If you look up the word driven in the uh, dictionary.com, which is a good dictionary to look up, it says that these are the synonyms. Energy, determination, initiative, ambition, get up and go, and the word motivation. So what motivates you, what causes you to be ambitious about getting out of bed and going about your day? What drives you? What is that determining factor that drives your life? Some of you say, well, Mel, the, the children, when they were screaming this morning, either they had dirty diapers or maybe they were hungry. That got me out of bed. Uh, some of us may have other things. Our financial obligations are what drives me. It's what motivates me to get out of bed. Some of us might say a work ethic drives me and causes me to get out of bed. Some of us might say, you know, my pursuit of a, of a happy family and a prosperous family might be some of those things that motivates us and drives us. There are some who have lofty goals and those driven things that cause them to get out of the bed each and every day. For example, some say, you know, what drives me is this, this quest that I I have to save the planet. I don't know if you've watched some of these commercials, but I was sick, flat on my back for about 
13 days. I watched a lot of commercials, and I can't tell you how many commercials there are of those who are trying to convince us that we must have the driving force in our life to save animals, especially dogs, at risk. I mean, there are people that that's their primary drive to save all of the stray animals out there and the starving animals. And, and those are, are, are good goals and objectives. I, I don't want to minimize those at all. And I think we ought to love animals and, and help protect animals. There are some, and I remember way back when there was a whole drive to save the whale. Anybody remember those? Save whales. And, and there was just all kinds of stuff. We have now this, this effort, this drive to save a certain kind of bird in Kansas. I don't know if you know it or not. It's extinct. And our government is trying to say you can't farm there because we're trying to save this certain kind of this bird. And I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. I remember when I lived in Santa Fe, the tree huggers were trying to tell some of the people that were, in, uh, where they were members of our church at First Baptist Santa Fe, they couldn't do certain things on the property they owned because they were trying to save the trees. You know, those are lofty goals, and I don't want to minimize those, but those should not drive us. There are goals that are a little less lofty, I think. There's some of us that would say, you know what? I have a drive. I have an ambition. I have a motivating factor in my life, a drive to succeed. I want to succeed in life, and I have a standard that, that tells me whether or not I have succeeded in life, and I am, I am driven to pursue that definition that I have in my mind or what the world has defined for me as to what is success. Some of us are driven to have great marriages. Some of us are driven to have healthy and great children. Some of us are driven by education. Some of us are driven by power. Some of us are driven by prestige and prominence and political ambition. Some of us are driven by our sexuality. There are all kinds of drives that drive us. And what we see in our text this morning is Jesus says there is one determining factor that should drive the heart and the life of the believer in Jesus Christ. What is that primary driving force, that motivating factor that should drive those who are Christ followers? Let's look at the text in Matthew chapter 13. Stand with me. We're going to begin reading verse 47. Matthew 13 verse 47. It's where we left off last week. Interesting parable. Matthew 13, 47 says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray one more time. Father, it's a joy for us to be able to come together in this place under one roof, one heart, one mind, one purpose, one intent, and open your word and read from your holy and ancient scriptures. And I pray that these ancient scriptures would be relevant to our lives today because they contain ancient truths that affect us and impact us even today. Your word promises not to return void. And so as we read it, we pray that your spirit would illumine our hearts and open our minds to comprehend and understand what these ancient scriptures tell us today so that through the application of your word, we might be not just transformed but empowered to live out what we have understood to be your will and your purpose for our lives. So God, use this time, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, please be seated. 
We've been describing and talking about for several times the primary motivating factor, the driving thing that existed in the life of Christ was the fact that he was here to set up his kingdom. He came to establish his kingdom, and he came not only to establish, but but he came to enlarge his kingdom. That was his primary purpose, to establish and to enlarge his kingdom. That was it. That was the whole reason why he came, to establish and enlarge his kingdom. And the whole time when Jesus spent in his earthly ministry and proclaiming his message and doing the things that he did and going to places that he went to and speaking to the people that he spoke to, this this whole quest was to establish and enlarge his kingdom. And this kingdom of heaven that is described last Sunday and this Sunday in these parables is a kingdom in which Jesus Christ then becomes the reigning monarch, the one in control, the Lord of individual lives who place their faith and trust in him as their savior. And they commit to him the the leadership and the lordship of their lives. And based upon that, then we then become a part of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And we become a part of Christ. And so Christ came to establish and enlarge his kingdom. And that's the whole thing that he came to do, to establish it and to enlarge it. And he enlarged it primarily by looking for individuals who were being called by the Lord to come and be a part of the kingdom that he came to establish and to enlarge. And that is, in fact, what he has called us to do as his disciples, to continue his mission, to continue his mission of enlarging the kingdom. It's already now been established. For Jesus said in Matthew three twelve, he says, repent for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is now before you. The kingdom of God is before us in the person of Jesus Christ. And when we place our faith and trust in him and accept him as our savior and commit to him the leadership and the lordship of our lives, then he builds a permanent residence in our hearts where now he reigns as sovereign king of kings and lord of lords. He now has the occupancy and the authority to dictate and to determine every aspect of my life and your life as Christ's followers, primarily of that very thing that drives our lives. And what drove him should also drive us if we're his followers. And I'm convinced that the believer in Jesus Christ should have one primary, one sole purpose or drive in his or her life, and that is to enlarge the kingdom of God. For one of these days, each of us in this room will breathe our last breath and we will find ourselves standing before Jesus Christ, who is the righteous judge, and he will sit in judgment then over the lives that we live. And we are in preparation for that day because I'm convinced that five minutes after you die or I die, we will stand accountable before him. And we'll have to answer for the lives that we lived or the lives that we failed to live. And so I want to take a look at the text, and I want us to look at the task that Jesus started in establishing and enlarging his ministry, or his mission, or his kingdom. Notice the task described for us in verse 47. There's a parable here that Jesus tells. Notice the parable. For here he says that we are to, to, uh, to establish this kingdom through the great commandment and the great commission in order to build his kingdom. Again, he says... The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers and threw away the bad. There's, there's a picture that Jesus is painting here. It's an interesting picture. It's a picture about some fishermen. And uh, these fishermen were ancient fishermen in the day of Jesus. They don't fish like this anymore, but primarily they solely fished with a net. There's no such thing as a, a pole, okay? 
and a rod and a reel back then. They didn't do it that way, and it would take forever to, to have, you know, to build a livelihood with a, with a rod and a reel. I mean, these guys were real fishermen, and we've seen them on, on the Discovery Channel, haven't we? The, the guys that risk their life, life and limb, and they go out into the, the Antarctic, and they fish for, you know, for salmon. I've, I've watched some of that. Anybody watch that? I've watched that. It's kind of amazing to watch these guys risk their lives for, for a couple of fish. But anyway, what they did during the day of Jesus is that Jesus was painting a picture for everyone who was there, and when he talked about this in, in this parable, everyone visually could see and understand what he's talking about. Here we have some fishermen, and they have a net. Someone would mend the net almost every day. They would make sure that as they mended the net, there were no places for fish to escape. That was a, a gruesome task. It took a long time to do that, to investigate every possible exit that could exist in this very, very large net. And then somebody had to load the net, or several men had to load the net into a boat. And as they loaded it onto the boat, there were times when there were two boats and they would attach one end of this very large net to a single boat, or maybe they would attach it to the shore. And then they would then proceed to take that boat out into the sea of Galilee. And they would drop this net as they would begin to proceed away from the point in which the contact or the original place of destination. And they would form a circle. And many believe that sometimes the circle was as much as a a quarter of an acre large. It was a large net. And on this net, as it began to drop down, there were anchors at the bottom of this net and floaties at the top of the net so that the net would float on the top, the top part, and the bottom part would go all the way to the bottom. All the way to the bottom. It's called a dragnet. And as it hit the bottom of the sea, they would then begin to pull it. And many times it took more than one, several men, to pull the net toward the shore or toward the other boat in which they were to catch the fish. John 21, remember the fish that they caught were so many that they thought the boat was going to sink. And so the disciples were very familiar with this kind of fishing. And so Jesus is saying it's much like dragnet fishing. This is how my kingdom is established and this is how it's enlarged. There's, there's an individual and this individual is a fisherman and he casts the net. And then he draws the net. And as he draws in the net, obviously because it was scraping bottom, what do you suppose happened? It drug everything that was with it. Old sandals. Maybe old suckers. Uh, no, there were no tires back then, so it couldn't have done that. Um, just all kinds of debris, but also all kinds of fish. Now, there are some kinds of fish in the Sea of Galilee that, that you just, they're just too nasty to eat. You don't want to eat them. And there's some that are, that are tender and some that are not. And so as the net was being drawn in to the sea, they would then proceed as they would open the net while it was at the sea. Again, they would sit down and they would meticulously then pick out the good fish from the not-so-good fish are the bad fish. And the good fish they would then put in a bucket that had some water in it. And the reason they would do that was to keep it fresh. Because you didn't want to take a, a smelly old, nasty old fish that's been out of the water for a couple of hours, right, to the market. No one would want to buy that. And they would throw away the bad fish and the bad things that were found. And so Jesus is painting a picture of a parable as to how he now is establishing and enlarging his kingdom. And this is what Jesus was doing. He was casting a net. 
And as he was casting the net, God would call and bring people into that net, and then the net would be drawn in, and then there would be a separation between the good and the bad, and he would keep the good and throw away the bad. And so really, in fact, what he's saying to us today is, this is our mission, for our mission is his mission. And as we consider the mission that Jesus was doing in order to establish and enlarge the mission, we see in this parable, first of all, we see an instrument that was used to catch the fish, which was a net. What is our net? Our net is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the net that he has given us by which we are to cast out so that as we cast it out, he then calls people into the net and we drag it and we bring them unto ourselves. The net is the gospel. And the gospel in the nutshell is this. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. How are we saved? We are saved through the power of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's the gospel that becomes our net. It is the gospel that we cast out. And as we draw in that net, it's the gospel then that saves them, belief and faith and trust in Jesus. So the instrument is the gospel. There are individuals that are responsible for the casting the net. While God is largely responsible for the harvest of the fish, it is those who are the fishermen, because didn't he, in Matthew 4, when he sought out disciples, he called four fishermen in Matthew 4. Who are they? Who are they? Peter, Andrew, James, John. Okay. Are you with me? And when he came upon them, they were fishing. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Sounds like bad grammar, but it's great theology. I will make you fishers of men. So the instrument that God uses to draw in the net are fishers of men, and we as Christ's followers are those fishermen. That's our task, is to be equipped and be used by him to enlarge his kingdom. We are the instruments. We are the individuals that God uses with the gospel. Notice the intentionality in that parable. I mean, these fishermen are very intentional about what they're doing. What, what are they seeking to do? Are they hunting for fish or are they hunting for fowl? For fish. Why? That was their drive. That was their intent. There's an intentionality here. And the intentionality is they're going after fish. And someone, as we talked about, had them in the net. Someone had to then load the net. Someone had to row out while they were going around and lower the net. Then multiple individuals had to draw in the net. Somebody had to sort through the fish. Somebody had to take them to the market. It took more than one person to make a living at fishing during the time of Jesus. It takes more than one person to reach a lost world for Christ. And we are individuals who must intentionally seek lost people. And I'm convinced that most of us are not seeking out lost people with the intentionality of the Lord. For the Bible says in Luke, and I think it's, um, it's Luke 19, I believe it's 10. It said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save who? That which is lost. If Christ came to establish and enlarge his kingdom, what was he going to do that with? 
people. And he came to, to individual people who would personally accept Christ as their Savior and trust in him as their Lord, and he would gather them unto himself. He said, that's, that's our task. Even today, that is our purpose. The Great Commission says that we are to go into all the world and do what? Make disciples. Our commission is to make disciples. And the problem with, with most of us today isn't that we don't understand our commission, it's that we fail to understand the commandment. What is the commandment? Love thy neighbor as thyself. For who of us, if we loved ourselves, wouldn't want to be saved? And the problem isn't with our commission. We understand most of us who have been Baptist all of our lives, we have heard until, I mean, we could quote the Great Commission. We've heard it a thousand times. Nobody needs to tell me that I need to go to evangelize the lost and lead my lost friends unto Christ. There are people right now that you know who are desperately in need of coming to faith in Christ. And this is the problem that I know that it's my job to go out and to cast the net of the gospel and sow the seed of the gospel. That, I know that's my job. My problem is with the great commandment. I simply don't care enough about their lostness to share Christ with them. For if we were a church and a people, individuals that believed in the great commandment, that is to love my neighbor as I love myself, we would then adhere to the great commission, and then we would then see the kingdom enlarging and expanding. The problem is the heart. But the funny thing is that Christ has left it up to us. He's left it up to us. Flawed individuals that we are who sometimes don't care about others with the same concern and care that we care about ourselves. And we attend, we attend churches that are built for us. We worship and worship services that are designed for us. And we live our lives as if it was all about us without any regard or any concern for the lost in our community. And so we hear, we see the task has already been started and he's given us the great commission. But notice there's a truth that he states in this incredible great commission. Notice the truth that he states. So will be at the end. So it will be at the end when? Of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. And he will throw into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's going to be a conclusion to the building. There's going to be a time when there will be no more adding to the kingdom. There'll be a time when the trumpet of God will blow and the dead in Christ will rise and those of us who remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds. And after the tribulation, there'll be a thousand-year reign and there will be some times and some converts then, but at some point there will be a consummation of the time and earth as we know it and life as we have known it will cease to exist. This is what he calls the apocalypse here. This is the end of all ends. This is the end of time. There will be no more earth and no more life on this earth. This will be over. And this time, this ending will happen. Notice there is a time of termination in this text. He said, so it will be at the end of the age. That word, so it will be, is a promise from Jesus. And Jesus, like the Father, always keeps his promises. And he's telling his disciples, I promise you there will be an end that will end all innings. There'll be no more games played. There'll be no more March Madness. There'll be no more perfect scores. It'll be over. 
And life as you know it will come to an end. And this is the apocalypse. And Jesus is saying there will be and there will come a time where there will be an end to this world that we know that exists today. It will come to an end. That's a promise. But notice the period, the end of the age. This is the apocalypse. In Revelation chapter 20, he talks about the apocalypse. And he talks about the time in which all of a sudden Jesus Christ will sit on a throne and he will then become the judge and the jury and the executioner of the sentence. And all of us, even believers and unbelievers alike, will stand before the throne and we will give an account of our lives before him. We will. How do we live our lives on this earth? Did you invest what I entrusted to you as my children, as my servants, as those who belong to my kingdom? And there will come a time in which the judge will also send a judgment over those who rejected and refused Christ as their Savior. And this judgment seat of Christ is clearly described. There's an end of the end of the times in which all of this will come to an end. But notice then there's a separation during this termination period. He talks about the separation, a separation between the righteous and the unrighteous. A separation of the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, at least some of us get a little cocky and think a little bit more of ourselves than we should. The only righteousness you have is a righteousness that is not of your own. It is a righteousness that comes from Christ. For any righteousness that you have comes from him and solely from him, not in and of your own doing, lest any one of us should boast. So we shouldn't be able to stand in that great cloud of witnesses thinking, I deserve to be here. We should stand in that great cloud of witness and say, you know what? I deserve to be down there. But because of the mercy and the grace of the Father through his Son and my faith and trust in him, I'm standing now on a position that is not mine rightfully to claim. I claim it because I'm standing on the righteousness of Christ. It's interesting that 2 Corinthians 5.4 says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we could stand now in and on his righteousness. So we're not standing there because of something that we've done, but because of everything that he did. And we're standing on his righteousness. It's not a cocky, self-righteous, arrogant, oh, look at those sinners down there. Look how righteous I am. Because if you think like that, you're not going to be standing where you would like to be standing. Because you're going to stand down there with the self-righteous who thought they were righteous, but they were self-righteous, not Christ-righteous. But notice not only the salvation of the saints, but notice the unrighteousness of those who are evil. Yes, there is a separation between the saved and the unsaved, the righteous and the unrighteous. John 3.18 says that, that whoever does not believe is condemned already. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. John, uh, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, The wage of sin is death. The wage of sin is death. And for those who refuse and reject Christ and refuse to believe, they are condemned already. Somebody said, well, how can a loving God send people to an eternal hell? It's not a loving God that sends people to an eternal hell. It's people who send themselves there because of the refusal and the rejection of Christ as their Savior. A loving Father does not send people to hell who do not justly and rightly deserve it because they are condemned already because of the refusal and the rejection of Jesus. 
and because of the sin that resides in their hearts, because they do not possess the righteousness of Christ. They never placed their faith and trust in him. And because of that, they do not have a position of righteousness. And he must, as a righteous judge, hold true to his character, and he must judge unrighteousness. For if he were not that kind of God, he wouldn't be a fair God. He wouldn't be a righteous God, for he must uphold his standards. And so here we see also not only a separation between the righteous and righteous, but we see a destination for those who are saved and those who are unsaved. There's a destination here because not only does he separate, but there's one group that goes to heaven and there's one group that goes to hell. And the group that goes to heaven is described in Revelation 21. It's a beautiful passage, and I wish I had time to read it. A, a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, and a new earth. And it's wonderful and glorious up there. But for time's sake, I want to talk about the hell today. Because hell, I think, is that subject that for the most part has long been forgotten in the pulpits and the churches and in the pews today. Hell is described in Revelation, uh, uh, let me see, it's uh, Revelation chapter 20. I want you to go there. We're going to just open your Bible. It's not on the screen. Revelation 20, I want to make this point, verse 11. We're going to go there in a minute. But if you hold your finger there where we are, notice the description of hell and the destination. Notice that he will separate the evil from, he will separate the evil from what? The righteous and throw them into where? A fiery furnace in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice the description of the destination of hell. First of all, there is unbearable pain in hell. Unbearable pain. Have you ever stuck your finger in a fire? I mean, just one time, a fire, a small fire, and you've, you've, you've burnt the tip of your finger? Anybody? How much did that hurt? Like fire. You know, somebody said, that hurt? It hurt like fire. Why? Fire is painful. And hell is described in terms of fire. I don't know if there are more painful pain to describe than the pain of fire. And imagine if your body were totally being consumed by flames of fire and your body is not burning up and all you're experiencing is the pain of the fire. Let me tell you something. Hell is not a fun place. It's not a place where there's laughter. It's a place of pain. And it's a pain undescribed. This is the, it doesn't mean there's a literal fire, but this is the only way, the only, the only description that they could help us understand what hell is like. It's like the pain of fire, unbearable pain. Notice in the text also the unending sorrow. There is weeping upon weeping upon weeping. They will not turn to Jesus. There's an anger there. There's a resentment. There's a bitterness. There's a rejection and refusal of Christ. And they won't have anything to do with him, even though they know he's the Savior. Unrepenting hearts. Unending sorrow. Unbearable pain. Notice Revelation 20. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, for his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, 
Who? The dead in the past. Even the people that have great reputations and the great politicians and the kings and the princes of this world, the great and also the small, the lowliest of life, the great and the small. Notice that he says, and I saw the dead, the great and the small, all standing before the throne and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by that which was written in the books according to to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. On that great white throne judgment day, Christ the righteous judge is going to open the Lamb's Book of Life, and he's going to read the names of the saved. Why is he going to do that? Is, is, is Jesus clueless about who's saved? No. I believe the reason he's going to open and he's going to read from the Lamb's Book of Life, whose names have been written in the Lamb's blood in that Book of Life, he's going to read from them just hoping just hoping that maybe there's been a mistake. Maybe there's just one soul down there who's about to be condemned to hell. Maybe there's just one down there whose name is on the book. Maybe. He knows there's not, but he's hoping there is. That's why he's reading it. Because, you see, he doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't create anyone to just be consumed by hell. And he doesn't want anyone, and he's reading from this book, and he's hoping that maybe their name is there. My name's there. I need to be, and they run up, but he reads it in vain. And then he reads from the law. And the law has been designed to help us see our sin and our need for a Savior. And it's that law that condemns and convicts us of sin. And then upon reading from the law, being the just God that he is, he must execute judgment. And so as we take a look at this text, we go back now to our outline, and we see the intentionality of living missional. What does that mean to us? Well, let me first say this. As we go back to, to our outline, I want you to write these, these things down very quickly. We're going to spell the word driven very quickly. I want you to understand that, that God does not take any joy in casting people into eternal hell. And it really bothers me when you're at a meeting somewhere and somebody says, and he's going to condemn them to hell. And somebody goes, amen. Why are you celebrating that? That's not something to celebrate. And I'm convinced it breaks God's heart now to send people to an eternal hell to live this kind of existence. For how long? For all eternity. There is no end to time there. There's no death there. It's forever. Their destiny has been sealed. It's been settled forever. So we as believers should never take joy in the fact that, that there are those who are under the judgment seat of Christ. But as we intentionally live out this mission of life, let's look at, at the word driven. Number one, we need to define the stakes. We need to define the stakes. What are the stakes? The stakes are the hearts and the lives and the souls of men and women, boys and girls who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. The stakes are about eternity. The stakes are about lives that are lost. There are relatives right now that you know, and there are people that you work with, and there are people that you pass every day whose eternal destiny is in your hands because you are probably the only one who can sow the seed of the gospel and who can cast that net out there. And their eternal destiny is in your hands. 
We need to find the stakes. Because if Christ were to return tomorrow and apocalypse were to take place because we don't know the moment or the time and all of a sudden the end of all ends happens, their eternal destiny has been sealed forever. That's the stakes. Their lives are at stake. And once we define the stakes, we need to realize then what our responsibility is. What is our responsibility? Our responsibility is follow the footsteps and the example of Christ, who he alone was driven then to expand and enlarge his kingdom. And that should be our task. We have a responsibility as fishers of men and women and boys and girls who have yet to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ to take the gospel to them so that God can draw in the net of salvation and save their souls. We have a responsibility. The fish aren't just going to jump out of the water and jump of the boat on their own. They have to have somebody that God is going to use as an instrument, as a vessel to be his voice to a lost world and to live the life that, is, that exemplifies that witness. And once we realize our responsibility, we need to identify with the message. What's the message? There's only one message. It's the gospel. If you give them any other message, you're not giving them hope. Actually, you're giving them damnation. And any church and any person that gives them anything other than the gospel of Jesus is sending people to hell. I remember a story one time about a charismatic preacher one time that I used to watch on television. He told a story about a person who had died and in their, I mean, a person who, 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 uh, who went to sleep and in their sleep they had a dream. And in their dream, he said, this person in his dream, he was standing, he was seeing, he was standing at the precipice or the side here where hell began, and he could see the flames. And he said, as he saw the flames, he saw beyond there someone who was sort of walking on top of the flames. And as he was walking on top of the flames, he would reach down, pick someone up by the head, and look at him and chunk him back down. And he'd walk over there and he'd do it again. He'd walk over there and do it again. He'd walk over there and do it again. And he said, hey, what you doing? He stopped and he looked and he said, I'm looking for the preacher that told me I wouldn't be in this place. Sad but true. Because there's only one message, and the message is the gospel. Secondly, we need to visualize the possibilities. Notice in the text that he, every kind, I think we have a tendency to think that there's only certain kinds that can be saved. Or maybe there's people that we've given up on. You know, we need to visualize the possibilities that we're going to be fishermen. A fisherman doesn't set out to go fishing, visualizing, well, today's going to be a sorry day, I didn't catch anything. Because most fishermen, so they go and do that, they come back and they lie about what the ones either got away or the ones they caught and they let go, right? Don't they? They visualize themselves as great fishermen. Never known one that didn't catch anything, have you? We need to visualize the possibilities. We need to see with eyes of faith beyond our inabilities and our insufficiencies and our inadequacies, and we need to look to the gospel because it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation, not my testimony, not my witness, not my obedience, but him and him alone. And it's him that will draw in the net. And notice their nets were full in John 21. The, the E stands for exert. We need to exert maximum effort. I mean, if we are being called to be fishers of men, it's not going to be an easy task. If we're going to be driven and consumed to enlarge and expand the kingdom of Christ through the gospel of Christ, it, it, it is, a, it is a, a huge undertaking 
I mean, can you imagine being there, the 500 plus witnesses when Jesus was sending to heaven and he looks down and he says, go into all the world. And they're going, world? Dadgum, that's a big task. The world? I just, you know, maybe my neighborhood. The world, that's my responsibility? Yes, the world. And while many churches today focus on themselves and only on themselves, I'm glad that I belong in a church that believes that God gave us a commission to the world, not just to Wichita. And there have been some that have said, you know, in order to save some money, why don't we quit giving to missions and use that for the debt? And I say, the moment we do that, God's hand will be off our church and we will die. Because we've been given a great commission to go into all the world. How can I one person go? You can go one step at a time where God leads you. And one step at a time where God leads you, one step at a time he leads me, and one step at a time he leads her and her and her and her. And as we go out together, we accomplish the Great Commission. And I kid you not, it's going to take a lot of energy. It's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take boatloads of money. But you know, if I'm driven... And my whole life and my whole purpose and my whole mission is to evangelize and expand and enlarge the kingdom, then everything I have is solely and purposely his. I'm just glad he gives me a little bit to spend on myself because the Lord knows what my face would look like if it were not shaved. And then lastly, we need to navigate with intentionality. These men were intentional about catching fish. They knew exactly what to do and I think we need to be intentional. We need to pray, we need to prepare, we need to proclaim, and we must then also persist. To pray, to prepare, to proclaim, and to persist, and not quit. When is the game over? When you die, your game is over. When is the church's game over? When the apocalypse takes place. That's when our time is up. And until then, we give it all we got. And then some. Isaac Watts has a beautiful hymn that I, I want us to sing. I enjoyed leading us in a song last week. It was poorly done. We're going to do better this time. In the early 1700s, Isaac Watts wrote a hymn. And I want us to sing this hymn. And as we sing this hymn together, I want to invite you, if this is your desire today, to do what this hymn says, I want you to stand. Do not stand unless this is your heart's desire today. As we sing this hymn unto him from our hearts with a commitment that honors him. Let's sing it together. When I survey the Save in the 
that last verse says love so amazing so divine demands my soul my life my all this morning uh, because we have I have several things this afternoon Patty drove me in her car uh, to church and uh, to service this morning and I'll be here all day and um, you know I'm almost six foot five so driving her little compact thing is is not so she drove today And I got to thinking about that this morning. I'm not in the driver's seat when it comes to my life. And you're not in the driver's seat when it comes to your life either. If we've placed our faith and trust in Jesus and have accepted him as our savior and committed to him the leadership and lordship of our lives, he's in the driver's seat. And when he's in the driver's seat, he can take us anywhere he wants and ask of us anything he desires. And it's simply up to us to say, yes, Lord, because a love so amazing and a love so divine demands my soul, my life, and my all. Are you living an intentional, missional life? Let's pray. This morning, we get to again celebrate God's amazing love. This is my friend, Chase. And I know Chase has several family members here this morning celebrating with him. If you're part of his family, would you stand this morning so we could honor you? Chase, have you asked Jesus to come into your heart to be your savior and your boss? Because of that decision, it's my privilege to get to baptize you this morning in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism and we're raised to walk in newness of life. 